Our scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and 34 through 43. Now, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. <clears throat> Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the wheat and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. <clears throat> Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. Quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Oh Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for just the blessing of being able to gather and worship this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless this time. Holy Spirit, that you'd illuminate your word inside our hearts, that we might understand what you want to say to each one of us. Bless this time and use it in our lives, Lord, for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a, a familiar scene you see in many, many movies, and it takes... It's different form, you can fill in the blanks, but it's always the same kind of scene. All the good guys, at this climactic moment, are surrounded by the bad guys. And it looks like all hope is gone. You know, here is that moment, there's nothing they can do, they're helpless in the face of this great evil, right? And then you look at the faces of the good guys, and you know, one of them is really terrified, realizing there's nothing they can do. But then one of the good guys is incredibly calm and seemingly not worried by what's happening. And everyone's like, you know, how could he be so calm like this? Even the bad guys are kind of upset by how calm they look. 
And why are they so calm? Because they know something, right? They know that this isn't as it appears, that there's something else going on. Maybe they know the place is secretly surrounded, or they know that bomb's not really going to go off, or they know that the suitcase has something else in it that they don't realize, but there's some sort of knowledge that remains that calmness. You know, and the scripture actually has, would say that us living in the world is a bit like that same. And the question to each one of us is, which of those characters are we? Are you the one who sits in that moment utterly terrified at that scene? Or are you the, that calm one who knows there's something else going on? There's something beyond what I'm looking at right now. You know, during Advent, uh, our series is The Coming Kingdom. And we're talking and, and teaching about parables from the kingdom, parables about the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Matthew. You know, Advent is about the coming of Jesus, the coming of God's kingdom. And, uh, you know, we often think about the coming being, you know, we think of Christmas, the first coming, but that's all the way at the end of Advent. We talk about his first coming. Advent's really a time when you long for his second coming, that he will come again and make the world right. That's why Advent has always traditionally been set up as a time much like Lent, a time of reflection, a time of repentance, a time as you ask yourself, am I ready for him to come? Am I longing for him to come? A, come to set, a time to set it apart. Because the scriptures would say that our focus on the coming of Jesus, our focus on looking for his return, is actually critical to how we live our lives every day. That believing that and knowing that greatly impacts how we are. Today we're looking at that uh, parable that was just read, the parable of the wheat and tares. And what's interesting is you notice from when John read it, it actually comes in two tellings. You know, one sort of here's the parable, and second one, here's what it means. And that's kind of what we're going to look at initially. And it's two different, two different crowds. One to a crowd, one to his disciples. So initially we'll talk about what is it, we'll discuss the parable, and why is it that it's told parables at all? Secondly, then what does it mean? And then thirdly, most importantly, what does it mean to us, and how should it really impact the way we live in this world? So the parable, what it means, and what it means to us. So firstly, the parable. The parable begins, um, you know, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man, or actually literally compared to a man who sows good seed in his field. Right? That's what this parable is. The idea of parables is you're going from the known to the unknown. Right? What is the kingdom of heaven like? And by the way, kingdom of heaven is a term that Matthew uses. You know, where Luke, John, and Mark would use the kingdom of God? Same term. But Matthew uses uniquely kingdom of heaven. And basically, what is that like? We don't know what it's like. And he says, okay, guys, come and take a look at something you do know and do understand. This field and how someone harvests and grows. That's a very common idea here. Sometimes not so common to us. But then they would say, this is something you understand. And parables tend to teach one important truth, right? One idea. It's kind of like when I, if I was trying to explain something to you and you're having trouble understanding me, and I say, it's like, uh, it's, it's like a guy driving without his hands on the steering wheel. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. It's not so much, I'm not so much explaining what kind of car it is or how much he's accelerating. It's a specific act in the midst of that story of the hands not being on the wheel and what that's like. Here, there's a very specific thing. It says, here's the analogy, you know, the field, and here is specifically the truth, if we want to talk about from it. 
So what is the kingdom of heaven like? And so he says, well, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he goes, it's like a man in a field. And he goes, he's planted good seed. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. And the weeds sprouted and formed heads. The weeds appeared. And you may be going, well, this seems kind of weird. I mean, enemies, around, I don't know about you, but I don't think of planting and enemies together, do you? You know, I'm sowing fields. I don't really think of that as a huge enemy attack time. But guess what? It actually was back then. Joe, you know, there was a Roman law against this very practice. There's no reason to set up a law unless that's actually an issue. So I guess people used to actually try to, in some ways, foil other people's harvest for various reasons, probably economic reasons or to whatever it was, but it was actually a law against going there. And the kind of weeds that would, were a specific kind of weed, evidently, that used to get sowed in them, and it, would, it was a type of one when it first sprouted up, it was actually very hard to distinguish from actual wheat. Came up in the same kind of right time, right? Like kind of looked like it. And you couldn't tell until it got a little bit higher. And by that time, the roots were kind of, you know, mixed, mixed together. And uh, so that's when he says, you know, the servants asked and they see this. And they say, do you want us to go and pull them up? And he says, no, he answered. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters. First collect the weeds, tie them in the bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. So Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's like someone who sowed seed like that. An enemy came in there, sowed wheats in it, wheat in it. They said, hey, can we uproot it? No, no, don't do that. You'll hurt the wheat. We'll wait till harvest time comes. And then we'll separate the two. And that was it for the crowd. And then you wonder, why, why did he use parables? Why is that all the crowd gets? And he says this. this is, and, and he gives different reasons for using parables. Because why not just explain to him? Why have that second thing where he explains just to the disciples? Why not give the long explanation to the crowd? Well, it says Jesus, and there's a couple reasons. One, he says, he spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will utter, open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the creation of the world, quoting Psalm 78. And earlier, he even quotes um, with the, because this is the second parable. The first one was the parable of the sower, you know, with the four seeds. He, there he quotes um, Isaiah. And says, so people will be ever hearing, you know, some hearing, some understanding, others never really being able to hear or understand. And you understand one of the unique things a parable does there is that some people understand it and some don't. In some way, it becomes almost like a, a, rev, a revealer of the heart. Where's your heart at? By, when you look at this kind of puzzle, if you want to call it, that parable, that picture, it either draws you towards God or away from God. And Isaiah would say that some of it we get almost disturbed. Goes, is it God opening up their minds? Is it God opening their hearts and closing others? But yet it also, as it says, you know, God, uh, they're responsible for the hardness of their heart and their unwillingness to listen. And that's one of the unique things in the book gospel, right? It's always, you can't understand anything apart from God's grace, yet you're also responsible for the condition of your heart and whether you're seeking. And the promise that those who seek find, but it's still by grace you find it. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's interesting, when I've, I, actually, you talk to anybody who do, who's done a lot of sort of outreach and a lot of sharing the gospel with people or you open the Bible and study with them, there's a funny thing you'll notice is that when you 
Sometimes you think that I need to be, really have it together to understand the Bible and be able to teach it and to be able to talk about it in the right way. Have you ever sat with a friend and tried to, and felt that pressure? They want to know something about the hope that is in you and you feel like I don't know how to share it or I don't know if I'm saying it right. But what you'll find oftentimes is the simplest thing, the heart that's open and receptive, will find everything you say utterly insightful and ingenious. And the person who wants nothing to do with Jesus, it doesn't matter what you say, it makes utterly no difference. And there's a point in which the parable kind of like walks down that road. And here it says, to the ones who want to know, to the people who want to hear, here's what it means. So then he opens it up. And, and then to the disciples, Jesus comes back and says, here's what it means. And this is very unusual also, is that he gives a very specific boom, 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 boom. These are what all the different pieces are in the story. He says, um, here's what it means. The one who sowed the good seed, that's the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed, that stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. He just goes boom, boom. This is very, it's very unusual. I didn't do that in any other parable. You know, the, the one, so the one sowing the good seed, that's the son of man. The field, that's the world. The one, the, the weed, that's the sons of the evil one. You know, the, and then the devil's the one who's sowing those. The harvest, um, the harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Says, and then he says, this is what it ultimately means. He says, so as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they'll weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the blazing furnace or fiery furnace, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let him hear, which is a bit of that parable line. Do you have ears to hear or not? Now you see language like, you see the language here. Now there's probably some phrases here that should ring a bell for you. When you hear fiery furnace or blazing furnace, does that remind you of anything? Yeah, the book of Daniel. And you probably have probably seen a lot of that language there. There's a lot of echo of the book of Daniel in this parable. It's not just simply the fiery furnace, but what's he say? Who's the one who's sowing good seed? The son of man. A unique phrase taken from the messianic, the messianic prophecy in Daniel, you know, and, and it, Matthew pulls upon it a lot. This vision of the Son of Man. And by the way, the Son of Man means one like unto a man, one in human form is literally what it means. You know, if you're a prophet, you're a son of the prophets, and that's what's so amazing about this vision in heaven. Again, remember, Kingdom of Heaven. Here's the heavenly vision Daniel had. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there was before me one like a Son of Man, a person in human form. And he was coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. There you see the God-man here, right? All the nations worshipping him, all glory, authority uh, to this person who's a man. So right here, you, there's the incarnation right there up in the heavenly vision of Daniel. As his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his what? His kingdom, right? There you start to get this kingdom idea. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So we have the son of man and his kingdom coming with his kingdom. And this is the language again that Jesus is kind of bringing. This is the name he took unto himself, the son of man. This is that who is the son of man, that ultimately that is the one who is the sower of seed here. 
But you see this other language. Now, Daniel talks about the end of time as well. As you get towards the end of it, to chapter 12, the final chapter in Daniel, he's gone through this huge vision, and it's a vision of the future. And here's what he says happens at the end. Multitudes will sleep in the dust of the earth. They will awake. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And maybe it reminds you a little bit of our series, The Wise Life, right? What does it mean to be a wise person? Ultimately to live as we were intended to live. Here the wise are in parallel, right? This is Hebrew parallelism, are in parallel to those who lead many to righteousness. That's ultimately what it means to be wise in this world. And they will shine like the stars forever and ever. Now, does that language feel just like the language of the wheat and the tares? Remember, it says at the end, what are they like? It says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You know, so it just sounds like he is taking this vision from Daniel and popping it right in the middle so you'll understand the meaning of this, of this uh, parable. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now, as we talk about some of this stuff, this, what means what we're getting at in this psalm, in this parable, is one of the things off the bat you probably feel is this idea of this, and, and sometimes might be disturbing for you, this idea of, um, call it, two ultimate destinies. You know, everlasting life and everlasting contempt. Shining like the righteous with, you know, and with the Lord, and the other one weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's kind of disturbing to us, isn't it, a little bit? These kind of ideas. And there is no third place for people who are good people who don't care about Jesus, right? It's not really there. You know, you have one place is where the kingdom, and what do you need to do to be the kingdom? A very simple way is you obey the king, right? You're under his authority. You acknowledge his sovereignty. When people say, I need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, it's the simplest idea, right? That's the, what it means to be in the kingdom of God. You bowed your knee to the king, you've acknowledged him as king, and you serve him and obey him, and that's what ultimate, ultimately you spend eternity out of this broken world with the king. And the others are the folks who want nothing to do with the king and don't want to obey him, and they will spend eternity apart from him. And, uh, and you think, but that's not essentially what the parable's about, is it? What is the parable really asking? The parable's answering a question. And the key part of the parable is that that division happens at the end of the age, that it's not uprooted now. Because what's the, what's the question going on? It's basically, what happens with evil? That's essentially it. Pull yourself into what's happening in Matthew in general, right? Uh, the throw of it, right? The, you have the start of Matthew, we you have the birth narratives, and what happens in the birth narratives, every other language is, and this is just as it was said, just as it was said in the scriptures, just as the scriptures said, you know, when he was born, he came, he's Emmanuel, God with us. So, you know, now the promised one has come. And then it's like, and you got chapter three and four, and John the Baptist says, he's the guy, and the voice of God comes down and says, this is my beloved son. You know, God, God affirms him that this is my son. Then you go into chapters five through seven, and he is giving uh, the Sermon on the Mount and all these teachings, you know, with the authority of God speaking, both fulfilling the law and giving the new law, that he has authority to speak. This guy speaks not like our teachers, but one who has authority. And then he proves the authority in chapters 8 and 9 by miracle, 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 miracle. 
You know, I, you know, I have the, he has power over creation. He is God in the flesh, right? And then what do you, what's the natural thing to do after this? You know, he has come, God's affirmed him, shows his teachings, his miracles. Now he goes and announces to the, all of Israel that he has come, right? That's what happens in chapter 10. So what happens then in 10 to 12? Is it this huge reception where everyone goes, he's here, we've waited for him. Yay, we'll bow our knee to him. Now what's 10 to 12? Rejection. You know, the, the, the teachers of the law, other ones going, what is he's doing this by the powers of Beelzebub. Oh, what, he's doing stuff on the Sabbath. He's breaking it. Who is this guy? Or other people, you know, Jesus warning them, they're going to take you before the courts. They're going to persecute you. They're going to harm you. They're going to do all these things to you. So the huge question is, what happened? Why don't they receive it? In many ways, these parables are much like, if you know Romans 9 to 11, essentially, is asking a question, too. You know, you come up through the book of Romans, and there's a huge outlaying of the gospel, 1 through 8, and all using the setting of Israel. Then you're like, but why did Israel reject it? So 9 through 11 kind of explains it. Here in Matthew, we're kind of explaining it with, these, with the parables, particularly these first two parables, right? Because the first two parables, what? They're like, why don't they receive it? He goes, well, the kingdom of heaven, it's like a, a, a man who goes out to sow his seed, and it falls on different kinds of soil. You know, sometimes some of it, it sprouts up, and then persecution stuff knocks it down. Other ones chokes it out, the pressure of the world. Some of the seed goes on the land, and a devil comes again, takes it away so it never gets something. But there are some seeds which go on good soil. And they, you know, 30, 60, or 60, 100 times over, that God accomplishes his purpose, and only some will receive it. And it's like coming to the next thought, man. But what about all these, these people? All these people are rejecting, and all these people are doing evil things and standing against you, and saying horrible things. And you've, you've come into the world, and people are, you know, even the teachers are saying, "No, you're not it," and others are rejecting you, and and harming your disciples. Why don't you do something about it? You know, if you're so powerful, if you're the sovereign one, if you've given given all authority by God as the Son of Man. Why are you tolerating this? Get rid of them. Judge them. Now. That's the question he's answering right now. So what's he say? I don't judge them now. Those seeds go in there. Yes, there's seeds. Devil's work in there. God's work. I don't root them out immediately. I let it grow until the end of the age. Why? Hard to know exactly. But what does he say in the parable? Why? Because in some ways, if I rooted it out now, it would hurt the good seed. Hard to understand exactly why that's the case. But that's what he says, and that's really what this, this is what the parable's teaching. And you might say, well, you know, I don't know if that, I don't know if that's a huge question I have, what happens to evil now? Why does God wait? But I think it actually is a question we all have. Do they talk about one of what, the, the two great objections to you know, the gospel? You know, there's, there's lots of objections. People have all kinds of reasons, but oftentimes there's two big ones that will come up again and again and again. You know what the two big objections to the gospel are? Number one, <laughs> if it's true, why do Christians behave the way they do? It's always one big objection. You talk to someone, they're like, I know what these Christians do. They, all, they don't show them to look like it's true. You know? And the second big one is evil. Evil and suffering. 
if God is all-loving and all-powerful, why does he allow this stuff to go on? Why does he not stop it? Those are the two great objections today as it was 2,000 years ago. And the answer to that is it says no one, because we feel like, why is God not doing something? But what's really underneath that? Why is God letting them get away with it? And what's the answer to this one? No one gets away with it. Nobody gets away with anything. Everything will lay bare before, you know, before him to whom they must give account. And that God will ultimately judge that there is no getting away with anything. That's an amazing statement. You know, and so as we, you know, as we think about that now in our lives, how does that make a difference to you? You know, you realize that you walk in here and you go, no one gets, that God will bring everything to bear. Because there's, there's a terror we feel now in people getting away with stuff. A terror we feel in the midst of evil and law. A, a, a cry for justice that we can't stand. But there's this, the scriptures would say that justice, you know, apart from some saying, that justice delayed is not justice denied. You know, that they, you know, it will not, they will, justice will be answered in that time. And that doesn't mean that you're passive in the moment. It doesn't mean you're not working for justice. It doesn't mean you don't hate evil and, and strive against it. But there's a real difference in how you strive against evil when you realize that no one's not, they don't have power over it. That you are in that first scenario of that movie, you are someone who can look at it and not realize in the panic that this is it. That the bad guys have had their way and will have their way. And I'm in panic that I am utterly powerless in the face of this. Now the reality is, is you are powerless in the face of it. It is out of control for you. But it is never out of God's control. Sometimes we hate that idea that it's out of our control. But guess what? It is out of your control. You cannot control evil. Doesn't mean you don't fight it. But you can't control it. But no one gets away with anything. I mean, I feel the terror from people. Gosh, I mean, I'm trying to think of what a good example is. I was thinking, sometimes, the, I mean, no... Everyone hates what's happening politically, right? But do you see that pe there's people who hate it and there's people who are in terror? You know? I don't know, 2060 after election, I know people are, I got to leave the country. I had friends or family. I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm utterly terrified of what's happening. You know, that's, that's the left to the right. And this, the, now it's the right to the left. I'm utterly terrified of what's happening. You live in utter terror of what's going on. I mean, I can understand if there is no hope outside of this world, I understand that terror. But we as the people of God should never live in terror like that. We may fight against things and not think things are right or good, but no one gets away with anything. All people answer to God. Nothing's out of his control. And if he allows it to go, then he has his reasons and why that is. And do we understand why? No, I, we have, I don't know exactly why it's okay. Why it hurts us if God would intervene early. I mean, we know certain things. You know, God wants, you know, he's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness, but he's patient, wanting none to perish, but all to come to repentance, he says. I can imagine, you know, so there's a reason for waiting. You can imagine as well that why does God allow evil, evil at all? Righteousness is manifest in the face of evil all the more. Light shines brightest in darkness. 
the truth and the reality and the righteousness of God is made manifest in the midst of the wickedness. But again, those are speculation. I can understand the benefit of it, but the bottom line that we're supposed to know is that no one gets away with it. And in God's plan, he lets them all come up together. But what's that other last, if that's the truth, that we can have calmness in the midst of that, what's the other big piece? It's to know that this is not the time of judgment. This is the time for sowing. You know, this is what the time is. In the midst of darkness, we are sowing seeds. We are calling people into the light. We are longing for people to turn to God and to know him, to know his forgiveness, to calling people out of darkness. That's what this moment is. Sometimes we want to be in the moment of judgment. We're not in the moment of judgment. In fact, we don't do judgment. God does judgment. We give judgment into God's hands. It's great. You don't, you don't, there's an incredible freedom that I don't need to know what's right in some sense. You know, I don't need to know how that person will be judged. But I can be confident that God will judge them justly and rightly. And if they're lying, they'll be found out to God. That gives me an incredible freedom when I deal with that. But I'm being called then not as a judge, but as one who offers the good news. Who walks as light in the midst of darkness, calling other people to the light. I think it's uh, incredibly exemplified in um, the missionary journeys of uh, Jackie Pullinger, Pullinger, for those who know her. Very famous story. I mean, she, um, this is a book of her, of her life story, but um, she went in her early 20s to Hong Kong as a missionary in the late 60s. And um, specifically to what was the walled city, which was in Kowloon. And for people who don't know the walled city, it was... Um, it was uh, largely a, um, let me pop it. If I can go backwards, I don't think I can. That's right. Um, so there was, it was like uh, seven acres with 35,000 people living in these big places, and it was ungoverned. I don't know if that point it was technically ungoverned, it was previously ungoverned, and it was functionally ungoverned at that point. It was ruled by the triads, by organized crime drugs, prostitution, uh, crime. It was just like this scary place. Remember, I walked in there even in 1990 after it was, it was far, it was at the tail end of its complete madness and it was still one scary spot, I'll tell you. You know, I thought I was in the Blade Runner at the time. I thought this is what it looks like, that part of Kowloon. But she went in there and she saw this as her calling to walk in the midst of that light darkness and it was unbelievable. She saw people turn out of organized crime, prostitutes rescued, people in drugs and alcohol restored. It was incredible. But she, I mean, you know, between the pimps and the crimes, and she, was, she was beaten, she was raped, she was, and she just kept going back in there being called by God to be light in the midst of that darkness. And she knew she didn't have to make it right, that this was all out of control, but her calling God is with her, and she's going to go in there and do it. And she, and she stayed there for decades with an unbelievable ministry and started a whole thing, St. Stephen, which extended to more of Southeast Asia as well. But she understood this was in God's hand, the time would come, and she was to walk into darkness and offer them light. You know, they asked her, um, is there any particular message that's on your heart for Christians? And she said, my message is always the same. It's how to get us sure enough of God's love so we can go out and share it with the lost. 
What's one of the reasons we aren't light in the darkness? Are we sure enough of God's love? Are we sure enough of God's hand? Are we sure enough that everything, that we don't have to take judgment into our hands, that all things will be in there? Are we sure enough of that, that it transforms the way we walk? This is what Advent's about, right? Thinking about that again and becoming, letting it fill your heart. She says, it's as simple as that, the interviewer said. Well, I don't know about you, but to me it looks quite simple. (laughs) Having tasted of his love, all I wanted to do was share it until the day I died. Simple. That's what we're called to do. In many ways, the Gotham, the wheat and tares is about sending us forth, saying, hey guys, if it is in God's hand, now is the time to go forth, to share, to call others to come into his life. As we come now to communion, that's what it's about, isn't it? traditional part of the communion liturgy is, um, gosh, my mind is freezing. Every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. There's a sense in which the communion table is a table for us to eat with Jesus in the midst of this broken world as we wait. And as we we wait to be renewed in our knowledge of him, strengthened, Renewing the gospel of coming to him in confession and being cleansed again by the blood of Jesus. Because again, we talk about the ultimate places in the kingdom of God. I mean, one of, one of the problems we have is we bow our knee, we acknowledge him as Lord, but in this broken world, we perpetually say, don't live the way we should live. We don't speak, we don't act when we should act. The things we do are flawed and broken. We say the wrong things. But that's part of being in this broken world. He says, if you bow your knee to me, I will wash you, I will cleanse you, I will put clean robes on you and take you to be with me, declare you righteous. And while we're in this broken world, we come again and again. He says, I want you to be renewed in that, renewed that I'm with you, renewed in being cleansed, renewed in the hardship of what it is to wait in this broken world for his coming. And really that's what communion's about. Let us begin now. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. From you, no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord.